This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, industrial designer Mark Newson discusses his experiments with materials. We visit Cocole, a retail shop celebrating local craft traditions in Madrid. Plus, we meet Megan Price, a board member at the World Design Organisation. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. We start today at the Rocker Gallery in London, where an exhibition is currently positioning archival architectural drawings alongside contemporary imagery. Called Vanishing Points, Architectural Imagination in the Digital Universe, it is curated by Hamza Sheikh. For the show, Hamza has mixed a variety of mediums and techniques, including digital and emerging technologies, alongside sketches from icons like Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe. We went along to find out more. I think drawings are the currency for architects. I think it's our way, our tool, our medium of expressing ourselves to the public and to clients and to each other. I think it's the way we communicate. In the middle, you've got these colour-popping Instagram-themed totems, sharp and punching through the space. The totems are actually showing the old historical drawings. So there's that juxtaposition of of time and for me that's an underlying theme for the whole exhibition the old meets the new but you don't know which one's which and you're still questioning whether drawings are timeless whether what people are doing now is in fact new or breakthrough and you might also question whether what they were doing in the past was way ahead of their time Neil Hobhouse who's the private collector for all of these items how he summarises it and he says the old age drawing people had in this exhibition, they were yearning for Photoshop, but they didn't have Photoshop, they didn't have the technology. Instead, they were using negative photo transfers and collage through scissors and glue. Whereas today, we might be doing the same thing. And I would actually argue we're doing that. We're doing that to the point where new technologies are emerging. What are we yearning for? Hand drawing will never, ever become irrelevant to us because it's always going to be our connection to what is truly human and what is truly art. The most truthful way of you portraying your vision is through grabbing something with your hand that can leave a mark. It may even be your finger, if the surface allowed, and moving it. The route from your mind to the point where the mark is made, that's the shortest route. As soon as you introduce another tool, an interpretive tool, say a mouse, where the idea and the vision is translated through other systems, then it's no longer as truthful as it could be. Which is why you'll see in this exhibition there are drawings by legends in the field like Le Corbusier, whose drawing looks like a five-year-old did it. That's why I chose it. What better example to show a student who's insecure about their abilities than to say, look at what Le Corbusier is drawing. And the power is not in how sexy the drawing is, but the power is in what's the intention behind it, what's the story behind it, what's the purpose behind it. No one's bad at drawing. It's just a form of communication. 
we've got stuff in here as far back as the 1700s and it's opened up my eyes it's been an incredibly informative and knowledge building experience for me to actually understand the the foundations the shoulders of the giants we stand on it humbled me it truly did underlying this exhibition is question about what social media is doing to our industries and for me we often talk about social media in this precautionary way which there's reason to but for fields who are involved in design social media is the one of the most powerful tools it's changing our interfaces it's changing the way we engage with other people's work it's changing the way we communicate our work it's changing the way we do our work i think there's something powerful in unpacking what is social media doing and understanding how we can make the most of it and also understanding how to use it in a responsible way previously we were in the age of dissemination through magazines and dissemination through word of mouth the big impact here is that social media levels the playing field anyone from any background can rise to popularity and become renowned if they just pick up a phone and record their art there's something really powerful in that Hamza Sheikh there. Vanishing Points, Architectural Imagination in the Digital Universe is on at Rocker Gallery in London until the 9th of July 2023. The Monocle Daily wraps up the day in Europe every weekday at 1800 London time. Every edition of the show features panelists from the Daily's rota of experts. Those big questions are always important when it comes to politics. Plus reports from Monocle's correspondents around the world. Some hope Sunday marks the end of a chapter in Chile's recent history. And interviews with authors, politicians and pundits. It's kind of a ghost story, but you're not really sure. And also listen out for the Daily's on this day historical feature and Henry Reece Sheridan's Letters from New York City. Unless you work at a bin factory, you don't get to see too many brand new bins in your life. The Monocle Daily, taking a wider, deeper and occasionally lighter look at the news. In Madrid's literary quarter, one shop puts traditional craft front and center. Cocol sources artisan objects from across Spain. crockery from Granada and tableware from Alicante displaying contemporary wares alongside vintage finds too. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, went along to the store, which is located in a former upholstery workshop, to meet its founder. Hello, my name is Pepa Entrena and I created Cocol almost 6 years ago in in Plaza de la Paja which is in in the center the old center of Madrid welcome to my shop what you are seeing in the shop is all spanish handmade by artisans from different parts of spain different regions uh, traditional artisans uh, family business local production i have always loved handcrafts not only spanish but handcrafts from all over the world 
I really thought that this was something that needed to be done because there was nothing like that at the moment. I think they are very precious and valuable and it's something that is in danger because there are many traditional handcrafters from villages that they don't have a next generation working and it's a universal knowledge. No, it's not like contemporary design. This is like the anonymous universal knowledge that is transmitted from generation to generation. And I thought that was worth preserve and to be value in a certain way. I'm brought to the big city, brought to Madrid, so everybody can enjoy it too. Maybe you show me over to one of one of the items that you think sort of encapsulates that traditional handcraft. Esparto is a material, is a kind of grass that it only grows in, in Spain, Morocco and maybe some other Mediterranean country, but it's very unique. It has been used for also for centuries in Spain to make baskets. Baskets were so important before plastic that everybody will appreciate and use it every day. It was a very valuable object. We try to find old baskets. They resist, this, these baskets are more than 50 years old for sure, and they, it's a very strong material. And with the time it gets this beautiful color, and they are very difficult to find the old ones now, but we are always looking for old baskets. So as well as working with artisans to make new pieces, you're also sourcing antique we only have uh, some antique, very specific things, no? like or some old pottery, the, the baskets, some old textiles too. But we also work with, with new ones. For example, these other pieces here are made by, by a new... Well, it's not really new because he is like 80 years old, but, but we try to keep working with him because he really has the knowledge that... He's the last one. He's going to be making these, these baskets. And we have some new designers working in Esparto too. Okay, these two pieces you see here were made by two young women. They are called Baliki Popoy. They learned how to work with Esparto with the grandfather of one of them, who was a Esparto traditional maker. But they were art students, so they incorporate a design on their pieces. So it's more modern, it's more fine, more delicate, because Esparto is usually very tough, no? But they, they make another version of Esparto. We also like to think about new artisans working with traditional materials, like this. And it's quite a collection of items and objects. You've got everything from jewellery to candles to ceramics, glassware. How do you go about sort of curating this collection? Like, how do you think about the space and what you've got in stock? I am a very impulsive shopper. <laughs> what you see here is what I really like and what I have always appreciated. And I try to find good quality things, like for example, the hats, they are 100% wool, they handmade with different sizes. There's really good quality, also the wool. The... But the most fun part is to travel around and just find out, you know, take the car and start driving and visiting different villages and visiting artisans and, and see what they do. Because most of these artisans, they are not in the guides and they don't have a website or anything. You just have to take the car and find out. Mallorca is definitely one of my favorite places to do that 
because it, there is still a lot of artisans working there. The traditional way is very rich in this sense, and it's so beautiful that when I when I get to travel there, I'm, I feel really happy doing what I do. <laughs> What's the current state, I suppose, of handicrafts from your experience and what you see, or how do you think it's doing at the moment? I think there is an important uh, boom for handcrafts in Spain at the moment, which is good, but I hope it's not only style. There are two kinds of handcrafts, in my opinion, ones that are contemporary and that incorporate design that kind of handcrafts in Spain, they are being very interesting now, with a lot of new designers, very good quality and design. But what I am most interested is in preserving the traditional ones. And the situation of the traditional handcrafts is definitely in danger. There's no way to, to sustain that kind of learning and working and, and prices and material and taxes. And most of the people doing this are last generation. Once they finish, they don't have young people doing what they do. Nobody else will continue their jobs and nobody else has the knowledge to do it, especially, for example, in traditional textiles, which take very, very, very much time, or baskets. It's really a very hard work that takes a lot of time. Young people that want to work with handcrafts they are interested in doing their own designs and investigating and, uh, and giving like an artistic point of view of these handcrafts, which is great. But this universal traditional knowledge is going to be lost in, in some years, in my opinion, unfortunately. Have you seen any, any ways that some people have managed to, to take this traditional and sort of make it popular or save it from extinction almost. Shops like this is one example, trying to do that, and I'm not the only one now, it's true. And also I think some institutions are working well, like for example in, in Galicia or in Granada, El Centro Albaicín, the governmental institutions protecting handcrafts are doing it quite well. They establish a system of learning internships, like the old way, no? Because handcrafts have always worked like that. You don't study to be a ceramic maker. You go there and start working and working and working, and with some years, you become a good ceramic maker, no? That way could be a way, no? There, there is certain initiatives that are doing well, but it's like, I think they're not joined, no? There's a lot of people working in one direction, but not together in different parts of Spain, no? We also make workshops. We have another room inside, and we try to make like a basket, basketry workshop. We do talks about handcrafts. And do people, once they have a go at actually trying to make something, actually appreciate how difficult and the skill? Definitely. When, when you go to a basketry workshop and you spend eight hours doing a little basket, <laughs> then you realize that oh, this is not so easy and is maybe it's worth to pay for it. Another thing that is, I think, is one of the most beautiful things that happen in Cocol. All the objects that you see here, most of them, Spanish people have grown with them. They are something that touches us very deeply, you know? 
That was very unexpected. The smell, no, you can smell the ceramic, the basket, the candles. We don't have any plastic, we don't have brands around. Everything is like the authentic product, no? It plays with all the senses and it reminds you of your childhood, of your holidays, of your grandparents' house. Pepper and Trina there in conversation with Maylee Evans. In addition to her role as the manager of customer experience design integration at Delta Airlines, Megan Price is also the youngest ever board member of the World Design Organisation. Monocle's Helsinki correspondent, Petri Burtsoff, met up with Price during Finland's Arctic Design Week to talk about her design vision for Delta and the work that the World Design Organisation does. Founded in 1957, the World Design Organization is the world's largest international body devoted to design. It has over 170 member organizations and it strives to promote and share knowledge of industrial design-driven innovation. It also organizes events such as the World Design Capital, World Design Talks and the World Industrial Design Day. And then we also just do community building, really bridging the gaps between the education members with corporate members and even associations and etc. We have a variety of different members, anywhere from an actual city um, to corporations to education institutes, startups and different associations and also different communities like Industrial Designers Society of America, Industrial Designers Society of Turkey, etc. Okay, that sounds really interesting. So... mm Do you want to give us some examples of some uh, recent projects that you've been involved with, with the World Design Organization? Yeah, so one of my favorite projects that we've ever done is working with UN Women. And we launched this project in collaboration with them to explore how do we elevate the perception and voices of women in Southeast Asia. And it was great because we were able to bring together so many designers around the world to collaborate on understanding what are the true needs and then how do we move this um, forward to really elevate the perception of, of women. And we're now in the second phase where we're starting to develop some of these ideas and then hopefully launching them um, within the next year or two. Price's position as board member of the World Design Organization gives her a unique vantage point into the world of design and how companies use design to meet their challenges. I asked Price if the world has fully grasped the power that design has. Honestly, I, I as the world, I would say no. Um, right now, it is still very much make this look pretty, make this make this product a little bit better, uh, or even just make this simple service better. And really, we're at the cusp of starting to see companies think about design impact on an ecosystem level. Um, a really great example of that is the chief design officer of Walmart. Uh, she has really been leading the way to show how not only they're influencing their customers, but they're starting to think beyond that. They're starting to think of design for humanity as their their way of working through every touch point. In October, Price started working as the manager of customer experience design integration at Delta Airlines. I asked her what her role at the world's second largest airline entails. But really what my role is, is to learn how to bring and mature design and design thinking 
to Delta Airlines on an enterprise level. Right now we have it in pockets, we have an innovation lab, we have a digital team, we have service excellence, and really trying to understand how do we codify and how do we really standardize our design practices. And so some of my initial projects are, you know, really mapping the end-to-end customer journey, but through a deeper lens, through a service blueprint, not just the traditional journey map. And also working with different teams to show them how they can transform their questions and their their decision-making through a design lens, taking more of the um, softer approach rather than forcing it down down people's throats, but more um, trying to hold our hands together and just show them the way of of how we can transform. And do you think? I mean, we talked earlier about how organizations have really understood the power of design, and, and Delta, of course, being a, um, you know a, a legacy carrier, being a, a major airline. How do you see the the time that you've spent with Delta, have they, are they sort of more forward-looking and open-minded in terms of design thinking? I am very lucky to work for a company that is so open-minded to innovation and so open-minded to new ways of thinking. Um, I report up through my VP who is so passionate about design thinking and then even our SVP and our CEO are excited about this way that allows our company across organizations to collaborate more. Really big driver of of uh, Delta really infusing design thinking is their passion for sustainability as well, um, which has been really great to work for a company that's also really supportive of me being a part of the World Design Organization. For Monocle in Rovaniemi Lapland, I'm Petri Burtsov. Welcome to The Concierge, a travel show from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. In our latest program, we trek to the Atacama Desert in Chile. As I find out, these deserts are filled with wildlife. On this trip alone, I saw all four of the six camelids that exist, llamas, alpacas, vicuñas, and guanacos. And explore the treasures of Newport, Rhode Island. The oldest continuously run restaurant in the United States, where it's candle-lit with tablecloths and cozy in the spring. It's housed in a grand red barn-looking building. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio. Finally on today's show, we're finishing with one of my countrymen. Australian-born industrial designer Mark Newson has a portfolio that spans furniture, watches, footwear, luggage and aircraft interiors. It's work that he carries out for high-end brands while also producing limited-edition pieces for galleries too. At his namesake exhibition in one of Gargosian's Parisian galleries, the designer recently presented a number of bespoke furniture pieces, which he crafted while experimenting with the metalworking technique Clossinet. Monocle's Julia Webster Ayuso caught up with Mark to discuss the challenges of producing his work, an early adventure into silversmithing, and his take on the relationship between art and design. These are pieces that were sort of originally part of a series of works that I did for show in New York. 2019. That dates back to the previous show that I did at Gagosian, like way back in 2000. 
uh, 10 or something in, in a show in London, but it was in a different material. So these pieces are all blue because I had a show in Athens yeah. last October and I redid all of these pieces in blue as a sort of Greek theme. So these pieces have all just come from Athens. I just found this blue marble and decided to make this sort of older piece, but in, in blue marble for the show in Greece. And so you've got a connection with Greece? I, I love Greece. I, I go a lot. My grandfather was Greek. We have a house there and go, you know, several times a year. I'd always wanted to do something in, in Athens, and there was never really the opportunity. It was, was not, I mean, as in the kind of political, well, you know, it was just a mess in Greece. So um, as soon as Gagosian opened a gallery, we sort of thought it would be really cool to do something. And Athens right now is just is really buzzing. It's kind of gone from being a complete nightmare to being a super kind of hit. I've not done anything with Gagosian in Paris. And it's nice to do an exhibition here because you've yeah, lived here for many years. Absolutely. I've done exhibitions in other places, but sort of quite a long time ago. But it's odd, really. I should have done more, but sort of never have. And I was, you know, I was planning a museum show at one point, and that sort of got delayed and postponed. And, you know, so that will, may happen when we get our energy <laughs> together. You know, exhibitions are a, are a, a kind of work in themselves. It takes a lot of energy to put, pull them together. And, and my work is, is, is complicated because it's um, very, very hard to make. You know, all of my stuff is just a nightmare to make. That actually ties in with my next question, which is the cloisonné um, technique, mm -hmm. the metalworking yes. uh, technique. These are crazy things. We started this process for the show that I was having in New York a few years ago, and I spent probably the better part of five years trying to figure out how to do this and where to do it. And then, you know, once we'd sort of experimented and sort of figured out that we could do it, and this was in China actually, in Beijing, because Beijing is where you do cloisonnés, despite the name. <laughs> it's a particularly Chinese and Beijing sort of skill. But we ended up building a factory outside of Beijing, which we still have, in order to sort of complete these pieces. 30 or 40 people, like, just making wow. these things, because over, because they take six months to make. So why choose this kind of ancient, very complex <laughs> technique? I've always been fascinated by the process, historically, but also because I, I trained as a jeweler and a silversmith. So it's something that I learned how to do when I was doing jewellery, which wasn't very long. I developed a sort of an admiration for that particular skill and some of the better known kind of examples, I guess, is, is a good one. That's kind of quasi but not quite. I like sort of upscaling things or playing with scale, taking kind of small things and sort of doing them big mm. or, or taking kind of improbable materials like marble and, and, and sort of turning it into complicated shapes. I've been doing that stuff since when I lived in Paris, actually, in the mid, well, 2005 kind of onwards, I first started doing things in novels, so. And you mentioned um, there are more exhibitions coming, and you're the, the only industrial designer represented I mean, I by Gargosian. How do you see the relationship between art and design nowadays? I mean, I don't think about it too much, personally. For me, it feels right, because I went to art school, and I did jewellery, and I did silversmithing, which was sort of more utilitarian, but nevertheless, I went to art school. I never studied design. And I started my career if you can call it that really, by making things. I like physically made stuff and I'd make one or two things which at a time because that's all I could manage. I didn't have the facilities or the, the means to produce 
things en masse like I wanted right. to. I worked like an artist, really by default. You know, mm. I did this thing called the Lucky Lounge, you know, way, way back, which has kind of taken on a life of its own as a sort of collectible thing. But, um, you know, and it's incredibly rare. But my intention was never for it to be rare. It became rare because I couldn't afford to make more than, <laughs> more than a, a small handful at, at a time. But that sort of stuck, you know, and, and then as I sort of developed my career as an industrial designer, but, you know, all sorts of different companies, I always kept doing these sorts of things as a sort of, <laughs> like a sort of sideline, but, you know, it was yeah. just my own kind of personal stuff. And, and the way that I worked, the style that I worked was really as a, working as an artist, was represented by galleries and, you know, the pieces were necessarily limited. In, in quantity and complicated to make and costly to make <laughs> and difficult to make. You know, I've ended up having these two sorts of parallel things happening. But, but the stuff that I do with Gagosian, for example, has continued and we just sort of have fun with it, really. You know, it's not my sole kind of... You know, I still have my, all, all my other yeah. projects, right? So I sort of do this when I feel the need. And yeah, it's nice to have both in a way. Yeah, yeah kind of dip in and dip out. Mark Newson in conversation with Julia Webster Ayuso. For more from this chat, pick up a copy of Monocle's May issue, available on all good newsstands now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. If you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's available at monocle.com forward slash shop. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.